Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And if you would stand, please, out of respect for God's word. Romans 2, 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who was one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Did anyone, has anyone here ever had a part? or taking part in a play or musical, maybe in, in high school, um, middle school, whatever. I, any, any actors? Any actors? Okay, okay, we got a couple, couple people that, you know, it's like, uh, do I want to admit that? I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't officially, though I did take a class in ninth grade called Speech and Drama because I thought it was going to be an easy uh, class to take, and I ended up having to play Hamlet in a shortened version of Hamlet, and... Um, uh, there were tights, and there was a choreographed sword, sword scene, and um, I have blanked it out of my memory. So I don't, it must have gone really poorly, because I can't remember any, I can remember walking into the room where we did said play, and then I can remember afterwards, I can't remember anything that happened in the middle. So it must have been a traumatic experience, and I am not asking my parents about how that went, lest I have to live that over again. Um, but if you've ever done that, or ever been a part of a play, or you've been up close on a stage during one, or if maybe you've been a part of the, uh, uh, what do you call that, the setup people, the, the stage people, what's, that? what's the word for that? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, if you've ever been part of that, then you know that you can be sitting, or if you've ever gone into a really, into a really uh, professional uh, player musical, and you sit out in the audience and you see the set, and it looks like real buildings, it looks like real uh, structures and things like that, but then when you go up close and you go behind, what do you find? You know, you find like your quarter-inch plywood and... Uh, uh, you know, old used studs propping it up, and, and this thing you thought was real is actually like carved out of styrofoam and painted. So it looks real from 100 feet, but when you get up close, it actually has no function whatsoever. It's just a prop, 
right? It's just a prop. It's a facade. It's paper thin. Even on a large scale, this is true. Uh, We had a chance to go to Universal Studios a number of years ago, and we got the opportunity to go to the uh, Harry Potter world there, right? And, uh, you know, Diagon Alley and the whole thing, if you're familiar with Harry Potter. And I'll leave uh, uh, people nameless for their own uh, sake, but I happened to get to go with someone who really loved Harry Potter quite a bit, and it was quite humorous as you walk through uh, the, the, the whatever that is, uh, gate nine and three quarters or whatever, um, and you are, oh, it opens up to you, and it looks so real, and just to, to see the face of a full-grown human uh, shedding tears at the sight of Diagon Alley, right? Um, like, like a reaction that I've never had with any of my kids at anything I've ever gone to uh, is, was quite remarkable. However, however, even though there were all the shops that were there, even though there was even a dragon that, that breathed real fire, when you got up close, when you, when you look carefully, you'd see cracks, You'd see the emergency exit. You'd see the uh, fire, ex- you know, the, the fire hose uh, receptacle thing or whatever, you know, where if, if something caught on fire, I mean, there was a breathing dragon, right? So if something caught on fire, they could, but you'd see things that made you realize, oh, this, this actually isn't the real thing. It's not actually Diagon Alley, right? So as Paul describes... Over the last chapter and a half, all those who are under God's wrath, he has hit the obvious people in chapter one, right? Those who have totally rejected God, who are totally immersed in sin. And then last week, he reminded us that even people who strive to be moral fail at it. Morality is insufficient for salvation. This week, the group, the, the mindset that he's targeting is related to last week. It's religious people who might outwardly do all the right religious things, but whose religion is a facade, who if you could see behind the curtain, if you will, if you could get up close and personal, you'd see the cracks in the doors. You'd see the plywood and the styrofoam that are propping it up. I want you to understand this because, because I think it helps to understand what's happening in Romans, but I also think it's just helpful in, in your general reading of the Bible, what Paul is doing in a bigger, on a bigger scale in the immediate context, right? He is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he's opened up this idea that the gospel reveals God's righteousness, and that the gospel is the power of salvation. And then he's broken off, starting in verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, into this kind of parentheses on God's wrath, that, that outside of the gospel, before the gospel is revealed, the only thing that's being revealed to us or on us is God's wrath. And he's explaining that it's everyone. It's not just these people or these people that you might think, but it's everyone who's under God's wrath. And so we've talked, like I said, we've talked about those who are in sin. We've talked about 
the moral people. We're going to talk about the religious people today. Next week, we're going to talk about a number of questions uh, that often come up for Paul that he's going to handle. And then the week after that, he's going to come back to the idea of the gospel and say, okay, now that you understand why this is necessary, now let me tell you how. God has done this. And so that's what's happening. And so we're talking about religion and how religion can be this facade. And you go, well, well Cody, are you sure? Because like, do, isn't doing religious things good? And I'd say, yes, yes, doing religious things are good. But let me give you a couple of examples that lest you think that I'm off here from the Bible. Uh, take, for instance, Demas. Do you remember Demas? He's a guy who Paul commends in two different letters as a co-laborer in the gospel with him. He thanks God for me, commends him to the people he's writing a letter to. But then later in 2 Timothy, Paul says that Demas has abandoned him and that Demas has abandoned the gospel and gone after the world instead. You take Judas, for instance. Well, isn't that the easiest example? He looked so religious that even the other disciples, even the other 11, didn't suspect him, didn't suspect a thing, not a thing. Even when he would make comments that we, being kind of on the outside, having the, the privilege of the narration, right, we, would, we know, oh, we know what he's doing. But, but even when Jesus said to him at that Last Supper, go do what you need to do, John, in the Gospel of John tells us that the disciples thought, well, maybe he needed to go buy some food for the feast, or maybe Jesus wanted him to go and give something to the poor. They had no idea what was happening. When the woman anoints Jesus, he gives a highly religious complaint, right? Oh, this could have, why, why did we waste all of this oil? It could have been used to, to, to give to the poor, but really, we're told that in reality, it was a cover-up for his true heart of greed because he took care of the money bag and he would take from it every once in a while when he wanted to. See, we all sadly have examples in our own lives, people who seemed to be believers, people who had maybe some kind of evidences of faith that we would say, well, that seems... Maybe even people who have played an important role in our own life spiritually, that, that God has used them to help develop our faith, and then later on, they've proved themselves otherwise. You see, those who trust in morality and religion, it's tricky because it's so deceptive, right? It's like a tree that may look big and strong, but in reality, the trunk inside is rotten. And the tree's, for all intents and purposes, dead. It just hasn't shown itself to be dead yet. And in the end, a strong breeze will come and it will break and it will fall. And oftentimes it crushes those who came close to admire it. The bottom line is this, guys. Bottom line of this sermon, the thing that I want to try to demonstrate to you this morning is that religion alone is insufficient for salvation. And Paul's going to show this by showing us a glimpse of what dead religion looks like, and then he's going to give us a glimpse of what true religion is 
at the very end. So let's jump into this text, starting in verse 17. Paul gives us this long if-then statement. It's this massive run-on sentence as Paul has a habit of doing. And I want to try to break it down really quickly for you. He's, he's turned his attention to those in the Roman church who grew up within Judaism, right? Jewish Christians particularly, or those who are considering whether or not as a Christian they need to do Jewish things. People who consider themselves not just moral, but but highly religious. And, And he hits all the categories with his if statements. If you call yourself a Jew, right? If you have the right title, to yourself, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you say the right things, if you know and approve the right things, right? You, you, you know what you ought to know. If you are sure you are a guide to the blind, etc., etc., if you teach the right things, he says. Let me, let me try to paraphrase this maybe for ourselves today. If you call yourself a Christian and you prayed the prayer and you went down to the altar, and you know your Bible, and you've memorized your verses, and you have the right theology, and you can support the right causes. If you went to Bible college, and you got the degree, and you lead small groups, and you've taught Sunday school classes. See, none of these things are necessarily bad, right? I mean, we wouldn't say anything in that list is a bad thing on its own. They're great for a person who's saved, truly. But for a person who isn't saved, it's not going to get you where you want to go. It's kind of like spending money to fill up the tank in your car when your car has four flat tires, a missing battery, and a blown engine, right? You pull up to the gas station, you got someone there with four flat tires, hood's open, the engine's blown up, there's no battery in it, and they're just like, hey, I'm just filling up the tank. You got to get to vacation, you know? Like, what are you doing? That's, that's a waste. What's the evidence Paul gives that this is insufficient? He says, You teach, you who teach, do you not teach yourselves? You don't practice what you preach. You say, Don't steal, but you steal. You commit adultery. You say don't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You, you say to abhor idols, but you rob temples. Right? I don't think that Paul is, Paul's point is, hey, these are the three things that I really see the Jews doing today. Or these are the three things specifically that are particularly a problem. His point seems to be that there is a disconnect between what you claim what you actually practice and who you actually are. See, one way religion can be dead is by saying all the right things, but it's not really changing your life. It isn't really changing anything about how you live. Paul says in verse 25, circumcision, right? Circumcision, think the most religious-y thing you can think of. More religious-y than anything that we uh, within the Christian church can come up with, I think. This is the way to identify yourself as a Jew. And remember, he started this whole thing, this whole argument with the statement, if you call yourself a Jew, right? Now he's talking about the biggest Jewish identifier, circumcision. 
He says circumcision is of value if you obey the law, if you actually are doing what God has called you or asked you or told you to do. But if you break it, then your religious deed actually becomes irreligious. Do you get this? That if you do a religious deed, if you do a good deed, but you've broken the law, you've disobeyed God somewhere else or in some other way, your religious deed actually is irreligious. It has the opposite effect. Verse 26, if a person who isn't circumcised, who doesn't have the religious identifier, who, who, but who does follow the law, will they not be considered truly, really, or actually circumcised, though they don't have the outward marking of it? You see, true religion is that which permeates the way we live because it's about surrender, not about achievement. See, I graduated from Bible college 15 years ago. Uh, you know, this is what's funny about Bible college. It's a weird, it's like a whole weird thing. If you've never been, then, then it's hard to understand. But I grew up in a pretty good-sized church, and I grew up in a pretty big youth group, and, and my youth group sent a lot of people to the Bible college that I went to, and I was pretty involved in youth group, and I was a leader in whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went to Bible college thinking, I'm a pretty good Christian. This Bible college is, is going to be really happy to have me as a student here, right? Everyone's going to be impressed with how good of a Christian that I am. But then you get there, and, and, and you meet other students, and you realize that there's a lot of students who know more than you know, there's a lot of students who went to bigger churches than you went to, who did bigger things than you did, who are better leaders than you are. In time, though, in the time since, in the last 15 years, there have been some who I went to school with who had, at the time, what I would have considered a great resume, a great Christian resume, right? They looked the part. They knew the things. They did the things. All of them. They won the, you know, uh, Christian service award or whatever that they gave away at the end of the year. You, you, you know those? Like if you've ever been a part of a Bible college, there's like multiple. Amanda won one, so whatever. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't, and I was ticked about it, which reveals where my heart truly was, right? Like, dang it, I should have won that over them. What, how terrible. But anyway, these people, they have this great resume. And in the last 15 years, what their lives have proved out is that their religion was dead. As they are far from Christ now. And there are those who came to Bible college and didn't know half as much as I did and hadn't done, but, but actually truly loved Jesus and just wanted to know him and serve him. And over the last 15 years, their lives have proved that their faith is genuine. I'm not saying that they're perfect. They've done everything perfect. I'm not saying that they've done, you know, what we would maybe classify as awesome things for God, right? But they've been faithful. Faithful to their Lord, faithful to their churches, faithful to their spouses, 
not that the resume, the things on the resume were necessarily bad. It's just that they're worthless if your faith is dead. But I think Paul's point here goes a little bit deeper, or, or there's maybe something a bit deeper that's at the heart of the issue, right? At the root of the thing, to keep the tree analogy. Look at what he says in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. That must have been a shocking statement to the Jews who read that. Wait, wait, wait a second, wait, wait. I went through all of that? You're saying it's not outward and physical? Come on, man. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. This last little phrase in this passage is easy to skip over, but don't. It's so critical. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, our motivations matter, right? When I'm sitting there going, I should have won that award, that Bible college award, put it on my wall in my office when I become a youth pastor, right? Everyone knows how good of a Christian I was in college. Motivations matter. And even in a world that is increasingly anti-religion and anti-Christian, there are still plenty of earthly motivations for acting religious, right? There are tons of places that you can get pats on the back. You can appease your guilt. You can fit in with a group of people you want to fit in with. You can do a million different things by acting religious. But dead religion, dead religion has the right actions, but the wrong heart. Dead religion has the right actions, but the wrong heart. The right actions with the wrong heart, it just isn't sustainable long-term, right? Once the heart isn't getting what it wants, what it, once life changes and the heart isn't getting what it wants from the right actions, it will do the wrong actions. As long as I'm getting what I really truly want from doing these religious deeds, then I'll continue to do them. But as soon as I don't get that anymore, as soon as my heart isn't satisfied by these religious actions, then I'm going to shift and I'm going to do other things because that's actually what my heart wants. Not praise from God, but praise from man, things for myself. My point isn't that the actions don't matter. I don't think that's Paul's point either. Don't get me wrong. Notice Paul says, merely one outwardly. Merely one outwardly. Outwardly does matter. We can't make the mistake to deny the value of religion altogether. The Bible isn't anti-religion as an as a overarching statement. Anti-religion as a means of salvation. 
You're going to church every week or, or, or gospel community or serving in a ministry. Your parents, if your kids have gotten baptized or they memorized all the Awana verses or whatever your thing is, those are good things. And with the right heart, they can be downright powerful things, right? God can use them in wonderful ways in our lives. But they're insufficient in terms of salvation. And I'd say they're insufficient on their own in terms of identifying how well we are doing as Christians. Why? Because ultimately, it's not about the condition of your Christian resume. It's the condition of your heart. A bad heart that knows good religion can hold it together and look pretty good when it needs to, but it's ultimately dead. But a good heart, a good heart, even that doesn't know good religion, even that doesn't know what to put on their resume or how to build their resume, it'll make mistakes for sure. But it will always move toward good religion because it's moving towards Jesus. Because it's alive by the Spirit. And the Spirit is leading it and guiding it. It's a weird world we live in nowadays. There is nothing you do, generally speaking, that might not get filmed and put on the internet, right? Like, it seems like, how are all these people that are in these videos where they're doing something really stupid, right? And it goes viral. Like, and you know everyone's got an iPhone in their pocket and can film it and can upload it in a matter of seconds. I am so glad that I didn't, that people didn't have iPhones when I was a teenager. Is, is anyone else glad that they were not a teenager when everyone had a phone in their pocket? Seriously, I would have so many embarrassing things I would have to explain to all of you. Like, no, I, really, that was so long ago. I can still be your pastor, I think. <laughs> think about this. Think about if all of your life was filmed. How would, how would that work out by Paul's parameters. How religious would we really even look at that point? Uh, take, let's take it a step further. Let's, let's say that it's an iPhone with a special app that can film your heart, that can see through you and could put on the screen that which is actually going on in your heart at any given moment, that can, that can display your motives better than you can even understand your motives. You see, here's the problem with dead religion. D dead religion needs an on-off switch, right? Dead religion needs to know when it needs to be on and when, in, when it can turn itself off, do what it wants. Dead religion... Dead religion can manage to come to church every Sunday morning and sing some songs and listen to a guy drone on for, you know, 35 minutes or 55 minutes, depending on what sermon it is. 
But a worshipful heart spends all seven days of the week bringing God glory, right? A worshipful heart is is, is desiring to figure out how in every moment they can bring God's glory. And it's sad and it's, re, it's, it's repentive of, of any moment that it doesn't bring God glory. And dead religion can say some really good things in gospel community and look really smart. Oh, whoa. That Cody guy, man. Whew. Tell you what, he always got that, that, that right thing to say in gospel community. But if your heart believes the right things... That changes what you say at work or what you say in your home when no one else sees. It changes what you say in your heart. You never actually vocalize. That's true religion. True religion is remorseful when the thing that's said doesn't match. It's true devotion. A dead religion can serve on a ministry team. It can give a little bit of time. It can do a few things, especially if it gets some pats on the back for it. But if you have a heart of service, well, that kind of heart serves your spouse and your kids when no one at church knows. It serves your neighbor when no one is going to give you credit. It serves the person who can never do anything back for you. Religion, friends, isn't necessarily bad. However, religion alone is just insufficient for salvation and it's insufficient for living the Christian life. All of us, friends, fail at our own standards, let alone God's standards. Now listen, you have a standard in your brain, in your heart for how a person ought to live and the reality is you fail your own standard. Am I right? Fail my own standard. I know that. And my standard is much lower. I set the bar much lower than God does. What hope is there for any of us then? I think that's Paul's point exactly. That's Paul's point in everything that's happened from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 2 and into chapter... all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. There is no hope for you on your own. We will all fail to hit the standard. The person who grew up in church in a Christian family who got baptized as a kid and who stayed away from all the big sins in high school. I remember being a youth pastor and parents, it was like parents were happy with me as long as their kids weren't doing drugs or having sex. As long as they wanted to go to church. If, if, I, if I got those three, then the parents were happy with me. If, I, if any of those three were missing, it's my fault. That's the youth pastor life right there. If that's what we're depending on for our salvation, if that's our Christian identity, if that's where our confidence lies, it is a facade. It's foam board and quarter-inch plywood propped up by old two-by-fours. It's a tree that's hollow in the center, and one day it will come down. But Paul knows it, because Paul was it. I want to read from Philippians for you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Paul's own words. 
He says this, for we are the circumcision. Remember, Paul is a Jew. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Read, if anyone thinks they're religious, I got you beat. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You call yourself a Jew? <laughs> I'm the Jew of Jews. As to zeal or, or as to the law, a Pharisee, you think you do the right things? You think you can teach? Oh, I can teach better. I can do better. I've done better. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul at one point thought his good deeds outweighed the bad. He thought, you know what? This is, there's a scale, and, and I got to get more good religious things on this side than I got bad irreligious things on this side. And he looked at himself, and he said, I am doing very, very good. But then he came to know Jesus, and he realized that not only does this not outweigh that, but all of this is actually on this side. It strikes against me, not strikes for me. He calls it rubbish. You want to know the Greek word? Let me just say it's Paul's cussing. That's what he's doing. It's refuse. Excrement, if you will. Only faith in Christ saves. Only that which is done through faith in Christ is good Multiple places in Romans and in Hebrews says the, there's the only, you can only please God through faith in him. You can only please God through faith in him. Regardless of our earthly, even our religious measures of success, it's only faith in Christ. And Paul says, I give all of that up if, just to know and have, and just, just for faith to know Jesus Christ. How can we know if our religion is dead? I'm going to ask you a few questions. These are just examples. They're not the end-all, be-all, but just some things to stir your thought. Do you love the concepts and ideas of Christianity without loving Jesus Christ himself? Are you more concerned with people knowing you are right about Jesus than those same people actually being right with Jesus? Do you find yourself quickly applying scripture to others, but slowly and rarely applying it to yourself? Do you often read the word, but rarely feel it coming at you, convicting you, encouraging you, transforming you? Do you care more that people know they're sinners 
than that those same people actually become holy and like Christ. Maybe you look at your life and your heart and you wonder, am I a dead Christian? Have I been calling myself a Christian, but but really I'm not? And that, frankly, might be a valid question for you to ask yourself. And that may be something that you need to take some time to evaluate. But I want to make sure you're answering that with the filter that Paul gives us in this text. Because just because you, you've had a bad heart motivation when you've done something, you've realized, ooh, I had a bad motivation there. Just because you've gotten into your car right after church, right, with your kids, and as soon as the door shuts, you're yelling at them. Can I get an amen? Anyone? Nope. Just me? Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not a true Christian. You see, if if Paul has said that all our moral deeds and all our religion, it's not sufficient for salvation because as good as you are at them, you've failed at some points, then we should expect as believers also that there will be times where we will fail too, right? And just as there can be trees that look alive on the outside, but are actually rotted and dead inside, there can also be trees that are very much alive, but have got dead branches. Maybe, maybe a lot of dead branches. I know I've had some moments with a lot of dead branches. The living tree, who's, who's God's child, will never be condemned, Paul says. But... It will be pruned. And God won't stand for having the dead branches of secret sins and hidden motives in his children. He will not, and he will discipline us. Even when we don't realize that branches in our life are dead, (laughs) it will come to our attention when he puts the saw to them. This process, it's not fun, but but I don't want you to confuse his discipline for a lack of love. I don't want you to confuse his discipline for condemnation. The very same love that he pours out on us in sending his son for us is the same love he pours out on us in sending his discipline for us. I want you to get that. The very same love the very, very same love that God pours out on us when he sends his son for us is the exact same love that he pours out on us in sending his discipline on his children as well. It may not feel the same to us, but his love does not change and neither does his purpose of making us like him. So what difference is it then? Paul says that our our hearts, our hearts need to be circumcised by the Spirit because we can't win this by the letter of the law. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that, that those uncircumcised hearts are like hearts of stone and that the Holy Spirit must give us a heart of flesh, a circumcised heart. That's, that's something that God does through the Holy Spirit to us. This is a work of the Spirit. We can't manufacture it, but we are told that there is an appropriate response to it when God does it. And it's right here in this passage earlier. 
Last week, do you remember? Verse 4. What's it say? We are to repent. Do not, do not presume on God's kindness and forbearance, but repent. It is meant to lead you to repentance. So do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Not, not perfectly, lest we fall back into it being our works again, right? But truly, are you repentant? Again, not perfectly, but truly. The answer is yes. You're saved. You are saved. You are God's child. You are a tree that has the living water of, of the Holy Spirit flowing up through the trunk of Jesus Christ and into your branches. And there may be dead branches, but God is bringing you to life. I want you to know that. And there are branches that he will need to prune. That's hard. But it's to bring more and more life into you. But friends, if the answer is no, I want you to know you're a dead tree. You're a dead tree. Not you're a dying tree. You are a dead tree right now. Even if you look alive, you aren't. And you stand condemned. That's what Paul's saying. You are under condemnation right now for being dead. But the good news is this. Christ is powerful to save, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and he can bring you to life right now as well. Even if never before, this very moment, you ever believed that to be true, even if everything up to this moment has been you relying on yourself or on something else, or just frankly ignoring and rejecting God, no matter where it is, if you repent and believe right now in Christ alone and in his work, I I know that it is done. It is done. Let's pray.